welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm John Cribbs, and with me is Chris Funderburg. Hello, Chris. Co-host of the Pink Smoke Podcast. <laughs> A well-oiled <laughs> machine that's now running at top speed, clearly. We worked out all the kinks. Uh, we want to say thank you to all our listeners for your patronage. This is a uh, podcast exclusive to Patreon contributors. We'd love to hear from you guys. Any comments on how we're doing? Any recommendations for possible topics that we could be discussing? Any angry complaints? Please feel free to contact Question, us through the website. Queries, or, please. Or via, via Twitter, we're at the Pink Smoke. So it's July, and we're going to be talking about one of our favorite filmmakers, uh, one of the patron saints of the pink smoke, Mr. Errol Morris, the, uh, the renowned documentary filmmaker and writer, uh, except we're not going to be talking about his films. We're going to be talking about his new book, the ashtray or the man who denied reality. Um, so I guess my first question, Chris, did you follow along with his New York times articles while he was uh, writing these originally? Well, that, that's funny. I have my list of notes here of things to discuss with you. And that's one of the things I was going to bring up where, um, yes, I did. And I was hesitant to read this book because those essays were completely obscure. Uh, they felt like an argument. The basic part of the ashtray, the reason it's called its ashtray, is Errol Morris was a graduate student at Princeton in the philosophy of science program, or the history of science program, I'm sorry, I already screwed it up, with philosopher Thomas Kuhn. And he made Thomas Kuhn so angry, Thomas Kuhn threw a giant six-pound glass-cut ashtray with like 40 cigarette butts in it at Errol Morris's head, right? And he did these New York Times articles that were about that somehow, but they were parceled out, and I didn't like them. It was really unclear. It seemed like Errol Morris was wrapped up in an argument that like, I just didn't understand what it was about or where he was going any, uh, with any of it. And he talked a lot about this other philosopher called Saul Kripke, who was sort of the impetus for Morris and Kuhn's fight. And, but it was hard for me to connect Kripke to Kuhn and I didn't get it. So when he was like, I'm making a book version of this, I was like, ah, crap like I don't want to read that you know so had you <laughs> read the New York Times uh, uh, op-eds had you been following in them in the same way I had been following them and that's actually I'm really <laughs> surprised to hear you say that because I thought reading this book I think I would have enjoyed it better parsed out as as op-eds as opposed to reading it all together in one book only because I've almost because of the same thing you said that it seems like uh, a one-sided argument or a rant when everything is put together you know and it, and it feels like a lot of the chapters he's going on well that's I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves great <laughs> interviews that he does with very renowned thinkers but yeah we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves um but but basically what it is is that I um I don't know. I, I thought that I think I think I would have liked it better if it didn't feel like he was bringing Khan into these chapters that were working well enough on their own. Yes. You know, just to kind of bring it all into one thing together, kind of one cohesive thing. Yeah. Um, we should that's mention. The thing I'll say is um, I prefer. Morris, yeah, sorry, go on. We're going to talk over each other. John, we're going to get loose. It's going to be loose and fun like our real conversations, not like these terrible affected podcast voice we do with each other. God damn it. <laughs> um, 
we should mention that uh, Errol Morris has made many, many films that we love. And last year he made uh, for Netflix, uh, Wormwood, a, uh, our favorite thing that we saw last year, right? It I was, think so. It's phenomenal. I, yeah. It's phenomenal. I just watched it again for the second time and uh, it's in six parts and it's just, it's, it's new territory for, for Morris stylistically and it's got ideas and just kind of these beautiful asides that are, there's just a lot to dig into in that series. It's very, and, and what I've noticed is that Morris kind of has this, at least recently, kind of has this thing where he'll do something amazing and then something that kind of disappoints me. And then something amazing again. Well, it's weird. And I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I feel like he's, he's, he's diverted his attention away from essential Errol Morris activities. When you talk about Errol Morris, he's most famous for having directed The Thin Blue Line, which is the uh, movie uh, about um, that got Randall Dale Adams off of death row. He had been convicted of murdering a Dallas police officer. The film actually uncovered new evidence that was uh, entered in evidence as part of Randall Dale Adams' retrial. He was eventually released from prison. It was a groundbreaking documentary. It included reenactments, although um, Morris would dispute that that's what they are, but included uh, fictive staged footage in with documentary elements and from there, he developed a camera called the Interatron, which is essentially a, uh, a screen, a TV screen that goes over the camera lens. So his documentary subjects would stare directly into the camera and make eye contact with the lens because on this computer screen is Errol Morris as the interviewer. So the human instinct is to look into the eyes of Errol Morris's face on the computer screen. There's a lens behind it, so it makes first-person eye contact. So Errol Morris is making these documentaries that are about investigations about reality that are generally one or two people being interviewed head-on in a first-person kind of way. And he's very um, consistent in style and approach for somewhere, I'd say, between, you know, 17 and 20 years. It's very unbroken. But you're right, he starts changing it up in the last 10 years, and one of the things he starts to do more of is write. And he drops the Interatron, that's the name of the first-person camera setup. He stops doing that, he makes this documentary, Elsa Dorfman, that's a very regular documentary, that's not really an investigation of anything, it's just like a documentary portrait of an interesting artist. And he just starts, he starts doing other stuff. And to me, trying to figure out what to do with the other stuff and assess its level of quality has been a lot of my relationship to Morris because he does get focused on writing. You know, in addition to the ashtray, he had other New York Times op-ed essays that, and short films. And some of the op-ed essays were turned into another book, book, a collection of essays called Believing is Seeing, which is an interesting, interesting book, but very... Um, I feel like if you're 17 and you are thinking about being involved with image in some way, whether film or the internet or writing, uh, you should read that book, which is to not say it's simple, but it's like foundational. You know, at age 35 or whenever I read it, there was nothing earth shattering in it, although there's frequently tons of interesting examples, but it's very like start there for thinking about photographic image and its relationship to truth 
you know? Well, what's interesting for me about like his recent movies and sort of his, the, the, the kind of direction that he's gone in is that another thing that you should understand about Morris is that he lives in Cambridge, right? Mm-hmm. He lives around a lot of very smart people. He has artist friends, you know, and that's how Elsa Dorfman comes about. Obviously they're clearly friends. Yeah. He, 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 he's hanging His around. He's, he's an artist. Yeah. Who he is yeah, very he's, close he's to. hanging around with lots of people. He's thinking a lot. And so I think every once in a while he goes in directions of like, I should do classic scholarly things like writing op-eds for New York times and doing books and even, you know, taking his film standard operating procedure and turning that into a book. Yeah. I think that he kind of eventually comes down to that. And he's kind of breaking out of the Errol Morris mold. Well, the standard just- operating procedure is interesting because that book, which was co-written by Philip Garovich, is much better than the movie. Standard oh, a thousand operating, times better. Yeah. Um, standard operating procedure, the movie, is his first movie that I was like, this is not good. Like, this is not what he wants it to be, right? Mm-hmm. And it felt like he was going through all this effort much like how I felt about the New York Times op-ed, uh, that op-eds that led to the ashtray, to set up an argument that I didn't understand where he was going with it, right? And then it gets to the end, and the last 10 minutes of standing operating procedure is interesting, but it feels like the movie should start then, you know, at its beginning. And the book um, fills in all of those blanks. Like, the book feels like the real thing in the movie is supplementary, to me. And that's part of its writing with, with Garovich, who's a great writer. He also wrote, uh, we wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families, which is like the definitive book about Rwanda, about the Rwandan genocide. And I think Garovich knows how to write that kind of book and helps Errol Morris write that book uh, in a way that he's not necessarily able to on his own. And, um, and it's interesting. It's interesting, but it's definitely the moment where he starts trying to do other things, you know? Yeah. Well, I think again, I mean, before you realize these things about Morris and his lifestyle and the people that he is friends with and hangs out with and talks with, yeah. uh, you have this kind of romanticized version of him from his earlier films as this uh, investigator, you know? He, yeah. He was he famously a private, a private detective, yeah. Private detective, yes. Um, which is how he finds, you know, the denizens of Vernon, Florida, and, you know, the the Pet cemetery stories and whatnot, and then comes, of course, to the Randall Adams story. And even with First Person, his TV show, you know, a lot of that stuff, it's a lot of true crime, it's a lot of um, weird, quirky stories of, you know, things that he's discovered, that he's unearthed. Uh, and that's sort of like your perception of Errol Morris for the first half of his career when he hits fog of war and becomes, you know, uh, living legend Errol Morris and Oscar winning Errol Morris, you know, and, yeah. and you start learning more about like kind of like all the TV commercials that he does. Um, you kind of get a different view of him. <laughs> Director which is, of Miller High Life commercials. <laughs> right. Director um, of, what is it, 7-Eleven, the traveling judge that he's really proud of. I, I actually well, do, well, do, you agree, do you agree, though, that like, you know, with those earlier films, you get this feeling like he's sleeping in the back of his car, like he's, you know, uh, he's pounding the pavement, you know, he's uh, wearing uh, hole, so, uh, holes in his shoes, you know, like he's really doing the footwork. And then these later ones, there's a much more like sitting back kind of a clinical quality to them. A little more like, you know, let's sit back and really think about this topic rather than like uncover things. I feel like with McNamara where it's like delving into him 
his you know his role in the Vietnam War and his role as the Secretary of Defense, it feels like it's it, it's a portrait of a man where we really need to just kind of pay attention to the guy as opposed to like really learning anything about him, which is what made so many people mad about when he did the um, the Donald Rumsfeld movie, because yeah. it was more of like you know a portrait of a person who there aren't going to be any revelations. We're not going to learn anything about him that we that we expect to do like a regular documentary would but it's just like it's introspective and i feel like it that's that point is starting right there that that becomes like a different kind of errol morris and it kind of for me anyway changed my perception of him in a certain way i'm not saying it was for better or for worse i'm just saying that it's a, it's a different side of him that now that he's doing this stuff it's like oh i get it you know i get why he yeah. wanted to like um, now that I know that he was a graduate student at Princeton, you know, and was yeah. interested in going into philosophy, you know. Yeah, and studied at, at UC Berkeley as well, and now lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and is he's much more of a traditional academic than I, I agree. When you originally hear about Errol Morris, it's him with Werner Herzog, you know, getting in fistfights in Wisconsin over, you know, uh, over Ed Gein's grave, you know, like the yes. stories are... Right. You think of him as being a, a, a Herzog type, as being a lunatic artist, but he's not. Yeah. And so what he fills his times with are much more um, regular sort of academic stuff. And that's sort of what the, the multiplicity of his stuff is. So I want to talk a little bit about, just so people uh, aren't completely lost with this book, The Ashtray, it is... It's essentially, uh, it's a coffee table book, right? It's not like a dry theoretical tract. It's like glossy pages with a lot of photos and a lot of footnotes. And it's an attractive, nice thing. That's the first thing that sort of struck me about it when I got my copy in the mail is like, oh, this is a nice object that I enjoy holding in my hands and hefting up and down and hurling across the room and picking up and leafing through again right very nice work university of chicago press yeah that it's like it's a cool thing and um but his argument goes with thomas kuhn that is kuhn is a philosopher who uh, is one of like the fathers of like uh uh moral relativism especially in the field of science where he developed uh these ideas he's sort of a, a malcolm gladwell type who uh, applies new words to like very pre-existing sort of cliched phrases. He invented these ideas of a paradigm and a paradigm shift, which is the idea paradigm is a belief system. And so you have scientists that are in a paradigm that have their paradigm for seeing the world. You know, they have their belief system and the paradigms are confronted with anomalies, which are things that are incommensurable with their paradigm. So Which is another Kuhn word, very specific Kuhn word. Yeah, exactly. But it means that, you know, people have a belief system. They come across things that are in conflict with their belief system. And this leads to scientific revolution, which is, or a paradigm shift, right? So now you're in a new paradigm, a new scientific belief system and way of seeing the world. And, you know, that's all very unobjectionable. None of those are uh, insights, although he gets a lot of credit for having come up with the words paradigm and paradigm shift, which are, you know, very basic sort of uh, uh, 
one one uh, one philosopher late in the ashtray describes them as trivial truisms, which I think is very fair. That it's like he's not famous for saying some shit that everybody knows. He's famous for saying and for advancing this idea, Kuhn, right, that paradigms, because they are incommensurable, one paradigm can literally not understand the other people existing within them. That Aristotle literally cannot be understood by Newton, who literally cannot be understood by Einstein, because they all exist in different paradigms. And he, uh, part of the idea for advancing this is, is well, that's a lot of background, but uh, that I, we don't necessarily need to get into right away for why this becomes popular in the 60s, this idea and sort of how it fits into what political ideas it fits into and why it becomes popular. But the idea is literally these are incommensurable and that uh, the understanding of reality is all relative to each other that these people have different relative understandings of reality and neither is correct. There's no objective reality sort of thing, right? And he has these complicated, they're not that complicated. He has these opaque and frequently incoherent ideas about linguistic theory that prove that this is true, right? That language has uh, no reference attachment that what we know about language is that words aren't attached to objects. They aren't attached to reality. Right. And so his linguistic theory is trying to prove this, uh, history of science theory about the incommensurability of different paradigms. And Errol Morris believes deeply in objective reality. Errol Morris is quote is, it's fair to say to talk about moral relativism, unless you're on death row for a murder you didn't commit, right? right? And I think that's what a lot of the argument is. And the reason Kuhn throws the ashtray at Errol Morris's head is Errol Morris is going to go, it's I believe in 1971, maybe 1972, he's going to go to uh, some lectures at Princeton that are being given by Saul Kripke. And Saul Kripke wrote a book that's not nearly as famous as, uh, as, as anything Kuhn wrote. Uh, they, they aren't even books. There were a series of lectures that were turned into pamphlets called Naming and Necessity. And essentially, Naming and Necessity is all about how words are attached to reference, right? That words refer to real things. And very simple way. And there's three lectures and like the first one is on proper nouns, right? And Kuhn loses his shit that Errol Morris is even going to go see Kripke give these lectures, right? And so that's what this whole book is about. Is It's essentially, it becomes an argument between Errol Morris hates Thomas Kuhn, who then throws Errol Morris out of Princeton. Errol Morris gets kicked out of Princeton for their disagreements, right? And Morris sort of exploring why Kripke, right? Was so about to Kuhn. And it's to me, and it's much less opaque Kuhn in the book the way he than behaves. it was in these so essays where you're reading in, in, in the what's context. less than half a chapter of the book. I, you know, I don't know that for a fact. I wonder if I went back and compared uh, 
the what's in the book to the essays in the New York Times, I wonder if they're almost identical. I wonder if I'm just remembering them different. I wonder if, if it's a Pierre Menard uh, author of Quixote situation. Um, but they made more sense to me in the ashtray. And to you, I'm curious, you were saying they didn't necessarily make sense. What was your basic reaction to this book. To me, it was a very exciting book that felt really good. To just have it around and read it and be with this book felt great to me. But I'm wondering what you thought of it. Well, obviously, you're very familiar with Kuhn's work. Uh, I am less familiar with Kuhn's work. I mainly know his work through Stephen Jay Gould, honestly, what he had mm-hmm. to say about it. Stephen Jay Gould <laughs> was a fan of Kuhn. And he always said that he believed that Kuhn thought there was, well, yeah, but he, he definitely said he believed that Kuhn believed in an, in a, um, objective world. Yeah. And that, you know, that, that it was a misinterpretation to say that he did not, that he absolutely refuted, uh, objective truth and, you know, in all its forms. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I, uh, when when I looked it up again, one thing that he said, was that before, uh, this is quoting Stephen Jay Gould, before Kuhn, most scientists followed a place of stone in the bright temple of knowledge tradition and would have told you <clears throat> that they hoped above all to lay many of the bricks, perhaps even set the keystone of, of truth's temple, the additive or murist model of scientific pro- progress. Now most scientists of vision hope to foment revolution. And revolution is another big Kuhn word. It's, you know, revolutions are what happened to shift the paradigm. Exactly. Um, And I think that that's the key to understanding. That's perfect, because Stephen Jay Gould is a genius. And Stephen Jay Gould is very generous, so he doesn't see this a bad thing. Locating Kuhn, Kuhn's contemporaries and who Kuhn is writing about are all a very specific type of 60s intellectual revolutionaries, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the context that this is all happening in. And one of the big linguistic things that they go into in the book that was really... um, uh, a, a lodestone of all of this conversation is uh, the Sapir Whorf theory, which is the idea there's this guy, Benjamin Lee Whorf, who had gone and studied the Hopi Indians and determined that their understanding of reality was determined by their language, not vice versa, that they literally couldn't conceive of time in a certain way because their language lacked the words, the verbs and adjectives and nouns to, uh, uh, in combination of those things, to elucidate time as we understood it, right? And this was a really big thing because a lot of these people were anti-imperialist. Kuhn and Hilary Putnam and, and Benjamin Lee Whorf are very against the idea, preceding idea of science, which is, you know, the Western tradition of empiricism, and moving along a path where things be, we get more and more truth and we're amassing more and more truth, uh, that that's what science does. And they were against uh, sort of imperialism in a general way, uh, but in the scientific context, the idea is we crushed these civilizations that, uh, that we were supposed to be civilizing. We thought they were savages. We were going to civilize them in Christianity, but what we really did was crush them. And we thought we were going to education them in science, but what we really did was destroy their own valuable ideas and disregard their discoveries that they had made on their own, right? 
this is what drives a lot of this is that there's actually a lot of wisdom in these places and so you have a guy like Benjamin Lee Worf, who's like a pseudo mystic who like didn't believe in evolution and like studied his own version. I believe it was like a combination of like Hindi and Buddhism that he had invented himself, or maybe it was a sect of it. But you have all these people who are really interested in arcane knowledge and mystical knowledge in these cultures. It's the same era where you have people being taken in by charlatans with the idea of transcendental meditation and yoga, that it's not just that it's a good stretching and mentally focusing idea, but that you can literally fly and never eat if you do transcendental meditation. And that was something that a lot of these people were really, these sort of scientists were interested in going to and exploring is all of the arcane knowledge and worldviews that Western imperialism and colonialism had sort of crushed and disregarded because of the paradigm they were in. It's really important to note about Sapir Wharf is that it has been entirely discredited. That Wharf mm -hmm. asserted things about how the Hopi language works because he was the only Western white person who had studied it and he projected an incredible amount of what he wanted to be true into it. And when other people started studying it, the Hopis disputed it entirely. There was no incommensurability between the Hopi understanding of the world as evidenced in their language in the Western way. And a lot of the problem was that when you had this sort of 60s, um, exploration of, you know, disregarded uh, cultures and disregarded worldviews and paradigms, a lot of the most valuable stuff they discovered that were true, that these countries did have different farming methods or uh, medicines, these, their wisdoms had been arrived at in the same way as the Western empirical method, as trial and error as figuring out what works and passing on the knowledge from person to person of, you know, what roots have what healing qualities, what methods for farming are sustainable, what methods have worked for us, right? That they were passed on as traditional scientific knowledge. And all of the stuff that was supposedly inscrutable to Western minds ended up being a lot of charlatanism, like the psychic surgeons who could pull tumors out of your stomach in South America without even uh, touching the flesh, you know? These are just literal charlatans, the floating people who are using transcendental meditation to float on their canes, the, the uh, ascetics who stop eating for all time. That all stuff is all hoaxes that gets misproven. So a lot of the problem with that era of the revolution in thinking is that it ended up reaffirming things that people like Kuhn didn't want reaffirmed, right? That like the empirical method, which the West had sort of based itself on and its understanding of scientific progress on, was visible and viable in these other cultures. And everything, a lot of what I'm talking right now, none of this is in the book. That's one of the things I think is interesting about the book is for me, it's really easy to trace the postmodernists and the moral relativists to the modern American left. You know, like the things I'm describing sound like the, they were the hippies and they were like, the, like Hillary Putnam was like a Maoist, you know, and who's against Kuhn and sort of uh, uh, um, somebody who's in battles with him, you know, but 
this is easy to trace to where the left is now. Even now you can read, there was just an article. I, I'm not sure what magazine it was in. It was one of those things that was all over social media where the author of the article had taken the position that the ancient Aztecs who were doing human sacrifice weren't doing something evil because they really believed the sun wouldn't come up tomorrow unless people were sacrificed en masse. And if you look at it from their point of view, they're doing something rational and reasonable. And so it's still around. So Kuhn is still around. Morris is concerned that it's a right-wing idea, that denying reality and denying climate change and that sort of thing is a right-wing idea. And so he keeps asking himself, does Kuhn even matter? Do I even need to be having this argument? And he doesn't seem to see where it's gone. Like he doesn't see the descendants of Kuhn, which is one of the things that I thought was very funny where it's like, I read it, it was like, of course, this is like the dominant mode of a certain kind of political thinking. Uh, but I think, you know, reasonably, Errol Morris is, is sympathetic. And there's a lot in Kuhn that's deeply sympathetic. And there's a lot in Kuhn that's true, you know? Uh, he's a smart person. But I think it's, it's fascinating to sort of see where it's gone. And even like The Arrival, the movie The Arrival mentions its whole idea is like this sort of uh, extrapolation of Sapir-Whorf that they mention in it, the, the theory in it, the idea that your language will determine your reality. And the movie takes this ridiculous the Amy position. Adams movie. The yeah. Amy Adams movie, not, not the Charlie Sheen. Yeah, exactly. But the idea is like, if you understand this alien's language, then you can time travel. I mean, just on its surface, it's ridiculous, let alone that like they're using a deeply discredited piece of research to further it. So, yeah. I guess that brings, that brings, that brings up the point of why Morris would want to do this book now, you know, after all these decades of having the ashtray thrown at him, <clears throat> supposedly he sees these concepts, these ideas and Kuhn's ideas still, you know, being prominent as you know fake fake news and uh well you know. they get under his skin he's very yeah. upfront about like i think i'm writing this just because i hate thomas kuhn you know yeah like, well yeah <laughs> <laughs> that, that that much is clear i mean it's a very very uh i don't want to say angry book but it's i don't even want to say petty but it's uh I think I think what I came away from it was was just kind of a feeling that Errol was really beaten up on somebody, which unfortunately reminded me of his last book, um, Forest of uh, Wilderness of Error. Wilderness of Error, that Jeffrey McDonald book, which we should mention. because in that one, yeah, he goes after. We I should mention that it is a book about uh, Jeffrey McDonald, who um, was uh, sent to jail for murdering his wife and two children. The Green Beret Murders. He in, blamed uh, it on a hippie coat that showed up saying acid is groovy and killed his whole family. And he went all these years later, Morris decides to look at everything, look at all the facts and create a new narrative. Uh, and anyone who hasn't read Chris's um, Pink Smoke article on that should go and do that. Um, but the main problem, I think, is that he goes after Joe McGinnis in this book. And Joe McGinnis is the writer who uh, did Fatal, Fatal Vision, the uh, book about Jeffrey McDonald. And um, there's a lot of going after Joe McGinnis. He also goes after Freddie Kassab so much. Well, he which goes I after a lot, yeah. But, but, but at least Freddie Kassab, who is the, uh, the 
stepfather uh, of the murdered stepfather of the murdered uh, woman, the murdered wife, um, has to do with you know whether or not Jeffrey McDonald is guilty. Yeah, I think going after Joe McGinnis after a while just becomes this thing of like you know that he doesn't respect his journalistic integrity because he was friends with McDonald and then uh, said he was going to do, you know, uh, a pro McDonald book and then went off and did, you know, the exact opposite. Um, After meeting McDonald and going over the evidence, it's like, wilderness is really hard for me to deal with because Errol Morris, it's just the opposite of himself in that book. That book is, the opposite of everything I've ever known Errol Morris to stand for. It's such a... It's, right. Uh, so I saw a little bit of wilderness fair in this, and anyone who's a big Errol Morris fan can just, from his description in the book, see that ashtray flying in slow-mo, pattering around. Uh, that image, you know, that you see so often in Errol Morris movies, The Watch and Brief History of Time, you know? Uh, yeah. Or what it comes around to mainly for me is The Milkshake and Thin Blue Line. And the use of the milkshake, the recurring image of the milkshake flying in the air and spilling on the ground is to demonstrate something that he is trying to prove, right? Something yeah. that is an objective truth. No, that, no, no, um, no, 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 no. That's the opposite. He frequently uses reenactments to show things that are of disputable truth. The only reenactments right. in Thin Blue Line are of things that are being debated he doesn't yeah. use reenactments for anything except for things that are up for grab. But it's not it's up still, for grabs that are being debated. Yeah, but it's still to put it in there and, and you know what the conclusion that you're coming to is that uh, the partner of the cop who gets shot, who said she was outside the car when it happened and therefore had like a, a good vantage point of the crime, was in fact did in fact stay in the squad car and didn't react until after. Uh, the gun went off yeah. and it's, it leads us to a truism, right? That, you know, that, that her, she cannot be relied on to be an eyewitness in this crime. Yes. But imagining the ashtray flying, all I can think of is that, you know, obviously more, what Morris wants it to symbolize is that, you know, uh, Kuhn was so unreceptive to the idea that his ideas were wrong that he would want to do physical harm against somebody who suggested that they were. Yeah. That he literally would lash out against them with this thing, which at the same time is a symbol of, you know, physical matter and, you know, whatever you want to say about, you know, I don't know, <laughs> kicking the rock or whatever. Um, but I just, I don't know. It's, to me, I wanted to think about that ashtray and what it meant. And all I could get coming back to was it went, it was, Errol Morris wanted to get back at Thomas Kuhn for doing this thing and for kicking him out of Princeton. Um, and it was hard for me to get around that throughout the book. So although the book is layered with lots of interesting ideas and lots of interesting interviews, and I think that just when it goes chapter after chapter of bringing up Kuhn just to kind of knock him down, I mean, the chapter Revolutions Real and Imagined has just the very beginning, he compares the definitions of incom incommensurable with uh, masturbation, you know? Yeah. He turns a phrase of Kuhn's when he, when he, when he saw a, a mathematic equation that made sense to him, he said, it was all ready for me, right? And Morris yeah. turns it into like, oh, like I could imagine, yeah. you know, that mathematical equation wearing lipstick and like being all ready. It's like, Jesus, he's really up. going, all rooted <laughs> up. He's really going below the belt on this, you know? Um, and I guess that's just, you know, Morris is playful. It's like part of his nature. Like, you know, yeah, I, I understand it. But at the same time, it was just hard to, concentrate on the stuff of the book that was interesting and, 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 and that I liked 
when he would keep bringing up Kuhn in just this negative way, like who would have you believe this and yeah. that, and especially thinking about people like Gould who say, you know, that there might be mis that this, these, these ideas might be misinterpreted. Yeah. And I, I, I could definitely see that Kuhn was, you know, contradictory and that he has, he said one thing and actually Here's the thing. Here's had the thing. Refuted a few pages later, Yeah, but it, it's just, it's, I kind of wanted to move past at some point and then he doesn't. Yeah, but here's here's the thing about Kuhn. And it's funny, this book, Wilderness of Error, felt like I do not see Errol Morris in this book at all. I don't recognize what this is. Errol Morris is one of the few filmmakers that I feel completely uh, on the wavelength with. Like Mike Lee is another one, just somebody I feel very in tune with personally. And their way of thinking about the world interacts with my way about thinking about the world and is just very meaningful for me. So a lot of this book, I felt like I understood where he was coming from. Kuhn and why he keeps coming back to Kuhn while sort of discussing more free-flowing concepts about the history of science and the history of the history of science and that sort of thing, it made sense to me because he's really caught up on something that I'm caught up on too, which is that, you know, when you read uh, old philosophers, when you read Schopenhauer or Aristotle, Aristotle is wrong all the time. You know, there's famously in the book, they bring it up. Aristotle was convinced women have less teeth than men. For some reason, that's wrong. So when you read Aristotle now, you read something's wrong. Uh, the thing that I was always obsessed with, Aristotle has this theory about how seals got, spine got shaped the way it is. And it's crazy talk. You read it now and it's just crazy. It's just completely, completely wrong. Where Stephen Jay Gould talking about Leonardo's Mountain of Clams, uh, his theories, Leonardo da Vinci's theories on how clam, clam fossils got into mountaintops, right? Completely wrong. They, it's fine for even really smart people to be wrong. When you get to the postmodernists, Derrida, Kuhn, uh, people uh, like that, that's the first philosophy I got to as a reader, as, you know, starting reading this stuff as a, as a teenager and always being an autodidact with this. I've never taken any class on philosophy, so I'm feeling my way through a lot of it. When you get to uh, the postmodernists or Lacan, when you get to that era, they're not wrong. They're full of shit, right? And you read them in a way that Errol Morris is obsessed with the same thing, where Kuhn response of throwing the ashtray, Kuhn's denial that he said what he thought he had said, that he would talk out of both sides of his mouth, that he would tell audience of scientists one thing and audiences of historians another, that he would say, I'm not a Kuhnian to people when they would accuse him of seeing the world through the lens of his writings. That's all full of shit stuff. And Aristotle, even when he's wrong, he's not full of shit. You know what I mean? And it's a weird distinction. Mm -hmm. And it's really irksome to be confronted with somebody who's full of shit. And if one of those guys threw an ashtray at my head, like a six pound glass cut ashtray at my head, I would never get over it. I would dream of destroying <laughs> them, you know? So I understand it too. And there's also a thing early on in the book that I think is interesting because I, I always think about this <laughs> when he's talking about 
Conan the Barbarian, right? And he's talking about uh, the, they used to just be some other snake cult, right? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. To me, <laughs> the, and this is so weird, and it's expressed by Conan, and it's a deeply, deeply, I'm not, you know, my politics, I think, are hard to find, but this is a deeply conservative idea, which is that the annihilation of false gods is essential to civilization, right? And that's a Conan idea that, you know, Set is just some snake cult, right? Conan's got to destroy them because Krom is real, you know, like that's his duty is the annihilation of false gods is the duty of people in possession of the truth. Obviously, that's destructive frequently when it's religions fighting each other over nonsense. But I think that there's something very true in that concept that science is the nicest version of that. And that to me, the reason I believe in science, and I'm not a particularly religious person, is that science's whole job is the annihilation of false gods. And but that is it one the of scientific the big... progress is possible because of that, because you're building truths. You're putting a bright stone in the, in the temple of knowledge, which is the true temple. That's the real God, the temple of knowledge, the temple of science. But isn't isn't one of Norris's main problems that Kuhn denies the access to the past, that when paradigms shift, the idea is that there's no accessibility to those old ideas. Yes. He insists, Kuhn insists that they're incommensurable, that they cannot be understood and they cannot understand each other because language has no reference, that it's not mm -hmm. attached to objects, right? That's objectively wrong. We can read Aristotle and understand Aristotle. Kuhn's whole idea is that like, I, when I was a teenager and I was reading Aristotle, I didn't understand when he's so astute about drama and philosophy, how he could be so fucking stupid about science. And then I realized his perspective, and he's very vague because Kuhn is frequently very vague about what he realized. And I realized that Aristotle is in fact a great physicist. That is impossible. What Kuhn, Kuhn's anecdote, according to Kuhn's philosophy, is impossible, which is why Kuhn would yell at people, I'm not a Kuhnian, and would throw ashtrays at their heads, right? Is that Kuhn puts forth a bunch of incoherent things, a bunch of incoherent ideas, and then hides behind the complexity and opacity of them. And there's a certain type of thinker there's a certain type of academic who really doesn't want to be understood and whose whole maneuver is what I'm saying is so complex, you cannot understand it or you have failed to understand me. And my rule of thumb is if more than once in my life, I hear somebody make the argument, I've been misunderstood, they're full of shit. They're full of shit. If you're constantly misunderstood, then you are failing to communicate but more than that, I really think you're a liar. I really think that you don't have an actual position. I really think you're willing to say whatever you want to say to sound the smartest and to defeat people in an argument. And I think that's why Morris brings up Schopenhauer's famous essay on, I think it's 32 or 33 ways to, uh, to 
win an argument. And Schopenhauer's, you know, pretty funny. So it's a lot of, it's not really serious at all. Schopenhauer's essential point is like, you can't win an argument. You can't convince anybody of anything. It's impossible. Logic won't work. So here's the other shit you can do beyond logic. And I think that's a lot of what this book is about. Although I agree that you're right, that ultimately why Morris is doing this doesn't crystallize in a coherent way, especially in comparison to his films, which feel perfectly coherent, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's a lot of this book is don't expect this book to be as good as Mr. Death, you know, or a tabloid, you know, it's not. And I think that's in part because Errol Morse creates portraits and art is able to do different things than, than philosophy is. And that Errol Morris's self-portrait, which is what this book is not very interesting at all. In Wilderness of Era, he doesn't make Jeffrey McDonald a character in it at all. In fact, he doesn't want to show us Jeffrey McDonald because he thinks that will set us against Jeffrey McDonald and make us believe he's a murderer. So it's a portrait without a person in it. It's a portrait. It's an empty frame, right? <laughs> he avoids drawing any kind of portrait. And then he also doesn't want to draw an ac accurate portrait of Helena Stokely either because she's a drug-addicted informant who's willing to say and do anything and is completely like, if you hear her for one second, you're like, whatever she has to say on this subject is worthless based on this portrait of this person, right? And so he doesn't want to draw her either because he's intuitively aware of that. So you end up with this book where he refuses to draw a picture of anybody to take a picture of anybody, which is what his films excel at so sharply, you know, that his portraits end up becoming expressive of his philosophies because he's such an amazing portrait artist, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because I know one of the things that Kuhn did put out there was that losing faith in solvability of problems, right? If you do away with puzzle solving or normal science, right? As he called it, yeah. that, that would in effect mean ceasing to be a scientist. Yeah. It's unclear to me whether Kuhn thinks science is possible. Again, that's why it comes back to revolution. Kuhn doesn't believe in progress. Kuhn has this idea Kuhn's ideas are used by people who want to believe that witch doctors are as legitimate as astrophysicists, right? And that to shift a paradigm is, it's, it's just unclear what he even wants. That's all you can say about Kuhn is that it's just completely, it's both sides of the mouth. It's full of things it's observations that are true, which are that different belief systems uh, lead to different philosophies of science, which lead to different ways of understanding the world, you know, so that if you want to study Aristotle, it's useful to think of what was scientific knowledge in the time of Aristotle. That's actually a perfectly useful thing to do. That's an interesting thing to do. It's a worthwhile thing to do. You know, what their understanding of what gold was in his era when he talks about gold or how how bone was generated when he's discussing uh, teeth and uh, the number of teeth in a woman's mouth. That's worth thinking about, you know? His idea is that it's as objectively true within that paradigm as 
the idea that dentists know how many teeth are in people's mouth is his radical assertion and one that he seems to, as a writer, know is not true. So he backs away from it constantly and reframes what he's saying. If all he's saying is that at different points in time, people made assumptions based on the knowledge of that era, well, that's no kind of observation. You won't be famous for making that observation. His radical observation, which applies and is reacted to and embraced by a certain academic revolutionary of the 60s, a certain hippie type, is that maybe that way of working at the world is just as legitimate as our way of working at the world and approaching the world. And I think that is where when you become famous for doing something and you become beloved by people who want to believe who are like revolutionaries, how do you go back on that? I think that a lot of what Errol Morris's book is about is like, Kuhn gets angry and violent because he knows he's a liar, right? I think that's Morris's perspective on Kuhn, is that, that Kuhn is plagued by self-doubt, is what I think Errol Morris's assessment of Kuhn is. I think it's interesting that the one thing that they're arguing about specifically before he throws the ashtray is the idea of inconsumerability, which Morris specifically says uh, without that, he feels like most of Kuhn's ideas are just sociology more than, you know, about the philosophy of science. Yeah. But also that Morris is saying he's going to go just see the Saul Kripke lectures and Saul Kripke, all he's doing and very concisely and inarguably talks about uh, the ways in which words are attached, have reference. Their reference is attached to objects, right? Mm-hmm. And Kuna is like, don't go, see, don't go see those lectures. I can't, you can't even be a student here if you're willing to entertain the idea of listening to that, right? And then throws them out of school there. And that's not the action of anybody who believes in what they're saying. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just not the, it's an action that's, that begs to be interpreted, you know, the way, and, and feels like an expression of something other than a philosophy, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's also funny. I was just thinking about too, because I read some reviews of this book and a lot of people Another reason I think I identify with this book so much is a lot of reviews, people who have bothered to mention the existence of the ashtray at all, and it has definitely not made a splash, is the people who are care about this stuff see Morris as a lightweight. He's like a fly who doesn't even really deserve to be swatted away from Kuhn's reputation, right? And one of the reasons I get wrapped up in this book is with my own film criticism, I feel the same way a lot of the time. Like, I don't like Hitchcock, you know? And to be someone in film who doesn't respect Hitchcock even is you just, people are like, well, that opinion isn't even worth addressing. You know, like you're just, you, who are you? Like what you're saying doesn't even need to be addressed. And so it's a funny thing where it's like people don't even feel the need to defend Kuhn anymore. 
he's just been canonized and whatever problems there are in his work have just been, they don't even, you know, like they don't, you don't even need to deal with Errol Morris. You know, you don't even need to deal with this book. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm surprised that uh, given the clear faults and uh, Kuhn's thinking that there are, that there are still such avid defender, um, hard defenders of him, you know, but um, I'm surprised too that uh, I don't know if it's because people, uh, Wilderness of Error got lots of great reviews and yeah. was a well-received book and was even for a while they talked about doing like, you know, like a series. About, yeah. yeah. Um, which obviously you and I didn't understand at all. <laughs> I, I mean, I understood why it was at a moment when true crime was popular and it's certainly like deeply researched in the way that people who are into true crime want every single morsel relating to a story, every single suggestive morsel. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the problem with Wilderness of Era, Error is that to me it's indistinguishable from a book written by somebody like Anne Rule or Serial, you know, that podcast Serial, which is also rife with the same kinds of problems that William Wilderness of Error has. And interestingly, people have taken Serial and researched it further and sort of the, the fan... Uh, investigation outside of Serial has yielded like way more interesting stuff than Serial did, which is fascinating to me. But it's, to me, the problem with Wilderness of Era is it resembles all that true crime junk that Mm -hmm. I like and I enjoy consuming. But like, if you ask me how good of a writer is Anne Rule, I'm going to be like, let me, how, how, how great of a thinker, how talented of an artist. I'll be like, me, (laughs) me. You know, but I just wonder, like, how people would think of a person who embraces someone who almost certainly is a murder, uh, uh, murdered his children and his wife, and then in his next book decides to go after, you know, a, uh, Thomas Kuhn. You know, <laughs> they probably just think it's sort of like a yeah. Milos Forman kind of thing. You know, where you like uh, you try just 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 for the sake of getting up on a pedestal you're knocking down you know the the well-revered artist and you're making a uh writing a love letter to um penthouse guy bob cugioni can i I larry flint larry flint yeah that's the hustler guy john get it together jesus cut all that out Why? I'm, that's interesting stuff. Here's a question I had for you, which requires a little bit of setup. When I was young, I read a ton of philosophy. I realized you and I have never discussed any philosophy. There's really no one on earth that I've discussed Kierkegaard or, uh, you know, or Schopenhauer or any of those sort of things with. Why my Leibniz, there's somebody who was really meaningful to me when I was young, Nietzsche. I, at some point, felt about philosophy that philosophy is a failed discipline, that art is what philosophy imagines itself to be. And reading this book, all of the most striking examples in this book are not the philosophers, but their Borges they're Philip K. Dick, they're Lewis Carroll, they're Cervantes, and all of the most interesting things 
examples that Morris and philosophies that Morris examines in this book are Man all- Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. They're all artworks, right? And I was going to ask you, you're not somebody that I know what you think either way about philosophy. Do you have a feeling on the relative value of like Cervantes versus Aristotle? You know what I mean? Like, do you have a feeling in this, that idea I'm sorting put forward that like art is what philosophy imagines itself to be? I definitely have not read as much philosophy as you have. I, I, Most I, of it's bad. No, I don't have an answer. Sorry. <laughs> but don't you think when you're talking about logic that it's, it's more worth somebody's time to read Lewis Carroll than it is to read, I, you know, Hillary Putnam or Noam Chomsky? on those subjects are Bertrand Russell's stories are more worth reading than Bertrand Russell's essays. That's sort of why yeah. I feel like- Bruce Pierce a, is definitely worth reading more than Chomsky or- Yeah. Or even I would say like Robert Musil, who comes up in the book a lot and The Man Without Qualities or George Orwell also comes up that those books that incorporate political, polit- political philosophy and regular philosophy into their narratives are able to do more with them. I mean, isn't this why you end up with, like I was reading, I was thinking in this because Hillary Putnam's famous twin earth example comes up again, you know, like what if there was another earth on the other side of the sun that was exactly like earth, except one thing was different, right? And it's part of a thought experiment or Chomsky's fictional Queen Elizabeth, who's exactly like Queen Elizabeth, is it possible for there to be a different Queen Elizabeth than this one that was, right? Aren't these just shitty stories? Aren't those examples, not thought experiments, but just bad writing? Like, isn't, isn't the contrast, the inexpressiveness and emptiness of those concepts, you feel them in contrast to like Philip K. Dick, like you feel them in contrast to Stanislaw Lim's A Perfect Vacuum. You know what I mean? That like the art is getting at in a way you can feel something that um, the philosophy is doing like a crummy job of. That like the twin earth is like a dumb idea and, and it's not, doesn't have expressivity. And it's like, it would be better if it were a talented artist writing that story although maybe not because the movie Another Earth is terrible and it's basically a play on the Twin Earth theory. But I, I do wonder about that. I do wonder if, and the philosophers that I feel like have work that survives the best are like Kierkegaard. It's a mystery to me why Kierkegaard's books aren't classified as novels. They're written as characters. Almost all of them are written as sort of theoretical experimental selves is what Kundera would call it, you know? And they work better as that. They're full of the ironies of character. And one of the things that Morris points out in the ashtray is that like Kuhn quotes from 1984, not understanding that what 1984 teaches you is different than the things you can quote from it because you feel what's lost when Winston Smith submits that governmentally imposed truth is not true and it feels like a tragedy 
because it is a tragedy, because you know what's been lost. And that that feeling, the way art works on you, you should come away with that book from a very different understanding of it than what Kuhn <laughs> takes from it by just cherry picking sentences here and there that seem like logical enough sentences. And I always wonder uh, about that, you know, when like Nietzsche switches to the aphoristic writing because he realizes that system building, you can't build a coherent system, total, total system, that there's always going to be pieces that fall out and don't work and are proven wrong and are in conflict with each other. So create interlocking aphorisms that can be taken and that refract off of each other and can be taken or left. Like it's a style he develops. That to me resembles, it, A, it resembles poetry, but it also resembles one-liners. It also resembles comedy, you know? Like a lot of his things are funny. You know, a lot of them are funny within themselves and have the funniness of irony. And I just wonder if philosophy is even necessary or if it's a pseudoscience that would be best replaced by art. Sort of what I feel like I wish Errol Morris had come to and said in this book is that Kuhn is a fraud. He's a charlatan. And he functions and operates the way charlatans have time memorial, you know? And what that says about that somebody can be at the height of their discipline and be a charlatan, you know? Because that's essentially what he argues for in Science on the Whole, is that snake oil salesman, you know, so long as there's a disciplinary matrix for a snake oil salesman to operate within, that that's just as, as objectively true as anything. Yes or no? Agree or disagree? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do an impractical joker's challenge. Find someone on the street and get them to agree or disagree that Thomas Kuhn is a fraud. Right. As, as we're kind of narrowing it down to like the nitty gritty here. Yeah. What I'm trying to kind of, you know. I feel like I've been expanding to the opposite of nitty gritty. <laughs> well, for me, I want to like this book more, I think. Yeah. I think that really my problem with it is the kind of bullying tone of it. Yeah. I really think that's it. So I, what I want to ask you is, do you think that Morris is more of a bully to smart people? That's an interesting question. I think Morris, the less Morris is in his work, the more interesting the work is. And part of the reason I don't respond to Elsa Dorfman is I feel like Errol Morris is all over that movie. And I know he's famous for, you know, uh, interlocuting off camera, you know, yelling questions out, which was quite shocking in documentaries when he sort of pioneered it. But do I think he's more of a bully to smart people? Reading this book, what I had, one thing that sort of, I'm trying to find this, shook my foundations. I have always thought that the nature of intelligence was something that Errol Morris was really interested in. And what we mean by something being smart or dumb. He has a lot of movies that deal explicitly 
with this. He has the two first person episodes, one about Christian Lagan. There's two, there's two first person episodes about two of the people who ever got two of the highest IQ scores of all time. One is a guy who like ruins his life trying to dispute a wrong answer on who wants to be a millionaire. And the other guy is a bartender, not even a bartender, he's a bouncer in the middle of nowhere. I want to say in Montana. Montana's not the middle of nowhere, but you know what I mean, that he's like, lives out in the country. And so he's clearly focusing on IQ in those. Mr. Death is also about the nature of intelligence. And then A Brief History of Time, I always felt like A Brief History of Time was in part about how you could have someone who's, and one of the reasons it's not a beloved film, and one of the reasons it's greeted with kind of a confused critical reaction is how you can have a genius like Stephen Hawking, who's unquestionably a genius, constantly saying ludicrous, silly, and dumb shit, right? Yes. And his mom makes that point later in the movie. His mom, Stephen Hawking's mother, comes across as the wisest person in that film to me. And she has the line about, absolutely, everybody talks a load of shit, even Stephen. Stephen possibly even more than most, right? She wouldn't say shit, yes. though, but it's that sort of that sort of phrasing. Reading this book made me doubt everything I thought I knew about Errol Morris and the study of intelligence. He seems to have an entirely huh. different relationship to intelligence than I thought he did. And I think it's from me projecting and interpreting the work that I understood his work in a certain way because I feel a certain way about intelligence, you know, that I Mm -hmm. feel like it's more mysterious than that. I'm a firm believer in, you know, not even a believer. It's a matter of fact, there's no serious neuroscientist who takes IQ to be a measure of anything. An ordinal ranking of something like intelligence is on its surface ludicrous. And at best, maybe it could measure brain power in some way, the way a car has horsepower. But that that vehicle still needs a driver and the driver is called consciousness. And you could have an ultra powerful brain that still has consciousness within it. That's going to do weird and absurd stuff with it. That's why those two very super smart men, Christian Lagan, who's the bouncer and the who wants to be a millionaire contestant who like goes back to high school and pretends to be a high school student and is like living in the back of a pet shop, eating cat food. Like he's there ludicrous people they're almost insane right yes and so you know the ways in which what intelligence is is very mysterious reading this book errol morris doesn't seem especially the late conversation he has with noam chomsky in this book he interviews noam chomsky errol morris doesn't seem perplexed by the mystery of consciousness in a way that I think his films really clearly express. And it surprises me, and why I've thought of this with the bullying tone, is you're right, the book wants to be right in a certain way and is focused on being right to the detriment of being thoughtful at times. And I think in that conversation with Chomsky, Errol Morris is interested in proving uh, Kuhn to be an asshole, 
he's not interested in Noam Chomsky's ideas about the limits of human understanding and the boundaries of consciousness. And Chomsky even brings up, you know, it's so funny to talk about Chomsky because he's such a cliche at this point to like even say his name. I feel like it just turns you in an asshole to be like Chomsky said, you know, do you feel that way? Just like yeah. even saying Chomsky turns you. Oh, for years. Yeah. Yeah. And also in this book, when you read it and it's like, hmm, everything Chomsky says is right. Well, I certainly don't want to be that guy who had that thought, you know. Chomsky's <laughs> right about everything, it turns out, you know. I don't know that thought. No, I think but you're really on to something like here. Pound Chomsky in the face into submission over that. Sorry, you go on. You know, I think you're I think you're really you really nailed it. Because I think on the one hand, you know, Morse is right to go after these, you know, smart guys who think that they have developed uh theories and practice that ultimately prove something to be complete bullshit to go after yeah, the James Grigson, to yeah. go after the James Grigsons and the yeah. uh, Fred Luther juniors uh, and the guy from, Oh, Oh, from Wormwood. Um, what was his name? Uh, Dr. Harold uh, Abramson. Yeah. Right? And even Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld's incredibly smart in the unknown. Known. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Robert I think that, that he's practicing going, yeah, going after all the right people. And who's the other uh, uh, first person subject? Um, uh, Dr. Michael Stone, right? From Mr. Personality. Oh, my God. All these guys who've developed the yeah, practices Why that are zany. Sorry. ridiculous. Uh, and that the heroes of his, uh, his, his work are always the Temple Grands or the Denny Fitches, you know, the people who are, don't, you know, fall back on an intellectual ideal, but they have just, they have, they, they're almost instinctual in their ideas and they're very emotional and pure in their thoughts. Their goodness they is don't, derived you know, from something other than their intelligence. Something other than their intelligence, exactly. But I think you're right that with the book, he doesn't go after Kuhn the way he goes after these other guys. He goes after him in a way that's like, like you said, to make him look like an asshole, you know, yeah. to make him seem like a schnook. I don't, I don't think his point when I watched The Smartest Man in the World or One in a Million Billion is that these guys are actually dumb. You know, that, no, that Donald he, Rumsfeld yeah. is dumb or Robert S. McNamara is dumb. I don't think that's his point. I think that it's I think the, his point is the terror of how to be can, careful with ideas. Yeah. Yeah. How you can to be some people with who are so smart believe ludicrous, <laughs> ludicrous, objectively ludicrous things? Yes. How can Stephen Hawking, when he talks about time reversing itself or being squished into spaghetti in the black hole, that are like, that's not how any of this works. How can <laughs> Stephen Hawking think that when it's clearly not true? And I think that's interesting too in the context of this book when he comes across like he interviews Hillary Putnam and Hillary Putnam he has respect for in the context of the book because Hillary Putnam is like an ideological enemy of Kuhn in a lot of ways. So he's very respectful of Putnam, but he also draws out like the, these ludicrous stances about being a Maoist in the 60s, you know, this guy who's just like an ultra rich college professor who's from like an aristocratic background, who's like, it's, it's silly to hear him talk about being a Maoist in that context. It's doubly siri, silly uh, knowing how history is gone. And I think Morris wants to remind you a little bit, like even Hillary Putnam can believe ridiculous things untrue things right mm -hmm. 
I think you're right that he never allows for the possibility that Kuhn has ever believed anything true or said anything intelligent. <laughs> I think you're right that it's the opposite where there's a total lack of generosity and the book is a vendetta, but I can also identify with this book. I can imagine writing this vendetta too. I mean, yeah, know? I mean, I mean, you see too that when he really, even with Rumsfeld, when he really gets face to face with these people and really puts their ideas in front of them, you know, they, they convict themselves yeah. <laughs> with the, the, with the wrongness of their, their ideas. And this book, obviously without uh, Kuhn's participation is just Morris pointing out what he thinks is wrong. And I guess it just, it's so one-sided. That yeah. For, yeah. That, that all it well, is. is also like, well, think about it. He talks <laughs> about in, uh, in Mr. Death, sorry, this just occurred to me in mm-hmm. Mr. Death, the first cut he did of Mr. Death. Mr. Death is about a guy who designs electric chairs uh, for capital punishment. He gets uh, uh, commissioned by a neo-Nazi named Ernst Sundell to prove the Holocaust didn't happen. Uh, Fred Leuchter, who's Mr. Death, uh, uh, who designs the uh, electric chairs, goes to Auschwitz, does some extremely terrible science, comes back and tells Ernest Zundel, uh, I have proved it scientifically that the Holocaust didn't happen based on my scientific study of the death chambers at Auschwitz, right? And it's terrible science. In the first cut of this movie, Morris famously didn't waste any time disproving Fred Leuchter's bad science. He showed a cut of this movie to, I believe it was at Harvard, to Harvard students, and a bunch of students were like, oh shit, my faith that the Holocaust happened has been shaken by this film. And even after hearing this guy mention that he smokes 50 cigarettes a day and drinks 100 he's on his, He's on his surface, not a credible person. You know, right. He's a weird guy. Right, right. he condemns himself like so many of the Morris villains. Yeah. yeah. And I think that speaks mostly to the kind of, to the mental weakness and fungibility of college students is what my takeaway from it, especially (laughs) Ivy League ones. But Errol Morris said, I didn't put it in there because I didn't want to have to prove the sky is blue. But he realized he had to go do a cut of the film where he wastes time proving the sky is blue right? And I feel like in a lot of his movies, he doesn't waste any time talking about why making a case for Robert McNamara being a war criminal. He doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't take any time trying to prove the sky is blue uh, in most of his films. That's not what he's about. This book is only trying to prove the sky is blue. You know, taking something that's, I think, intuitively obvious to a lot of people that there is an objective reality outside of us and that our thoughts and our language do not generate reality around us, Mm. you know, Um, regardless of how many philosophers dream of being butterflies, you know, and he and he's really intent on proving the sky is blue. And I think he occasionally does it to the detriment of hey, you know, uh, the sun sets sometimes, you know, like the sky changes to different colors sometimes too. You know what I mean? Like this book doesn't allow for the sky to be orange and pink and then the green ray to appear in any way. Um, That that is a really lovely explanation I came up for it, isn't it? That was just right here on the spot. (laughs) Goddamn, podcast magic. <laughs> but so let me, let me I, ask I, you a I'm question. Excited. I want to ask you a question. 
All right. Do you think that Errol Moore should keep writing or does it frustrate you that he's not focusing on film, especially knowing he still has Wormwood in him? Or do you think there's room for both? Or what do you think? Because you respond less to his written work than I do. Well, this particular written work, I really liked Believing and Seeing a lot. I think that one's really good. Um, uh, even the Abu Dhabi stuff that's in there that kind of you know came over from uh, the, the movie, Standard yeah. Operating Procedure. Um, I, I, you know, in the Grayland interview he did a few years ago, a couple of years ago, he mentioned, you know, getting into writing and not being sure if it was what he should, the, the, the arc his career should take. And the New York Times had kind of like reached out to him about doing these op-eds and how it just kind of went from being really nervous about being good to just kind of letting it come out. So I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for a while. I'm willing to let him slide on a few books. You know, uh, I really want to read his Wisconsin murderers book that he keeps saying he's going to write. That's going to include Ed Gein and these other See, that murderers. Feels perfect to me. Yeah. It feels perfect. I feel so, like none of his books have been. I, will, I mean, I'm there for anything. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this book is the closest yeah, that, to being what he is a filmmaker. Could. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think, um, like I said, I feel I feel confident in the streak that he's doing, where he does something that's not not as up my alley, and then something that is just mind blowing. You know. Yeah. So I'm thinking, like, after this book, he's going to have another great thing, like Wormwood. Um, but I, I, it, I'm, I'm there for anything Morris does. You know, yeah. he is beyond reproach as far as I'm concerned. Even when he does something that I completely want to throw in the trash like wilderness of air it's like i yeah. just want to keep coming back for more i he's a, a thinker i admire well that's like, the thing is i really I mean, disagree with the conclusions of wilderness of era but i really love the opportunity to go over that case with errol morris yeah you know absolutely I mean? like absolutely. i love to get to pick his brain about it because there's nothing else you know as disappointed as i am in that book it's still like i'd welcome that 10 times over if he just wants to keep picking up old you know solved cases and making unconvincing cases for uh <laughs> for redoing them i'm actually i'm i'm interested in that me too and i want to reread this book again and i i enjoyed spending time reading this book i you know i i definitely liked it it's got me more interested in uh some of the people he brings up in the book and kind of going back and looking at all their stuff even though as you pointed out you know there is a certain sort of uh uh, Kilgore Trout sort of rom romancing of like <laughs> of uh, of B B writers and 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 fiction writers who are more philosophical than the philosophers yeah. are. Um, I you know th there's always some interesting stuff to go. Can on. I tell you one thing about that too that I that was also thinking about? Yeah, yeah. You know this this book is so it's funny. Anytime you read a philosopher, as somebody who's involved in the arts, who's like my concentration is film, and then secondary with with literature and not philosophy the philosophers there's just like the go-to i always want to tell them like you know there's more than just philip k dick like you can read the strugatsky brothers and stanislaw Lim too you know like yeah. you'll get other examples to find you don't have to go back to the you know like what would these people do without you know pierre menard author of quixote like, what would they do? Also that they get it wrong. Like, even in this book, when they're talking about Pierre Menard, it's like, um, it's not about Pierre Menard. It's a review of this book 
written by Pierre Menard, and the main character is not Pierre Menard. It's this idiotic reviewer, you know, like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's pale fire. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's about the review of it. It's about the person interjecting their thoughts and imposing their thoughts uh, to the point of absurdity on an artwork, you know? But even reading mm -hmm. this, it's like, yeah. instead they just take the concept. It's weird. It's sort of like, they 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 think they're discovering what Borges is telling them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's it's a strange thing where it's sort of I I don't know, but I always wonder about that. But reading reading the Earl Morris book, it it doesn't make me curious to to reread. You know, like Kripke again, who's perfectly fine. It definitely makes me go, oh god damn, I should I should read Alice in Wonderland again. Alice in yeah. Wonderland really is sure. great. You yeah, know? yeah, no, yeah. It's like I want to sit down and read um, short stories by uh, Ambrose Bierce right now. You know? <laughs> yeah, or Bertrand Russell. You know, yeah. like I, I, I don't think I've read that Bertrand Russell short story collection since maybe middle school. Mm -hmm. Like that was the kind of thing where I was like, I'm going to be a precocious reader, and like at latest I was 15. <laughs> you know, and it's like I yeah. should read those again. They probably make sense now. <laughs> i might i might understand them now but anyway anything else uh, you have to say about the book not, you know i could talk about this book all day i think there's there's a lot to say about it but yeah. but but perhaps we've said too much perhaps we've gone <laughs> too far perhaps i've taken it too far i think about there's there's a guy who i was reading uh this is unrelated but i say this all the time this is just me and you john cribs and me bullshitting right now there's this guy who's reading about extreme calorie restriction which are like these people that have like gotten it down to a science how many calories they need to live in a day and like the it's a journalistic article i forget where the fuck i read it but the guy who wrote it is interviewing this like 60 year old man who weighs like 70 pounds and and he's talking about all of the virtues of doing calorie restriction and just reading it on the page, he sounds completely haunted. And the last thing he says is, per perhaps I've taken it too far. And I think about that all the time in the way I approach the world. Anytime I'm about to like be Chris Funderberg, I have this like picturing me as an emaciated 60 year old man on calorie restriction and going, perhaps I'm taking this too far. We'll we'll leave it to the listeners to decide. <laughs> no, As they are not my judges. <laughs> Only God can judge me. They are, they are your jury uh, and your executioner. That's true. That's true. Um, my executioners. Uh, John, did you have anything else you wanted to say? Is there anything uh, else you wanted to get off your chest? Not currently. Not currently. Um, uh, though I'm excited to uh, bring out some new articles in the Pink Smoke. Uh, Martin Kessler kind of took over the site for uh, for a month, which was great. Yep. Uh, that was a great series. Hot take and Kessler taking over our site. Super hot take <laughs> Martin Kessler. hot takes. Um, we're going to if Toronto they, in September. The... Oh, we can say we're going to do a special episode of the Pink Smoke podcast in September, where we'll be at the Toronto Film Festival. You know well, it. Joining us, Mr. Marcus Penn. We've got a super, super duper, so secret you might say even John and I don't know what it is. Episode coming up in August. 
It's so I secret that the universe has yet to reveal it to us for August. But then in September, we're going to be at TIFF. Yeah, that'll be huge. I can't wait. Okay. Uh, I, that's, that's it. That's all I got. That's all I got, Chris. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Have a good time, everybody. <laughs> Have a good time, everybody. Yeah, we definitely need to write a theme song to go with Cribs. We do. We need a positivist theme song that leaves everyone on the correct note of feeling great about the harmonies of the universe and the joy of possibility. Agreed. 